I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Study sheet in your bulletin will give us some direction. We will spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, and I have been so eager to get here. And I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians, as you know, is a letter written to a very troubled church. They, I mean, they're messy. They got problems coming out their ears. And, and Paul begins the, this, this letter by talking about the gospel. And in chapter 15, he circles back to the same topic. Uh, problem after problem, yes, needing to be addressed, uh, needing to see Christ come to the table. And then again in chapter 15, here he comes again. Uh, you see my words of review there on the sheet in front of you, some comments on today's text. Of specific interest, this is a chapter, please get this, in large part is about the resurrection. Christ's resurrection and yours. Yours. Someday. It's about the triumph of, of life over death. It's about death not having the final say. This chapter, as I have here in front of you somewhere, is in a sense an apologetic for the Christian faith. And I use that term in the, in the, the theological sense of an apologetic, not an apology like we often speak of, but an apologetic, an ex- explanation. It's a defense in many areas of the Christian faith, an apologetic, not by way of argument so much, but by way of detailed explanation. People wonder about the resurrection. If you ever wonder about what that's about, this is the chapter you want to come to. That will be unfolded much more in the next two, the next two weeks. Today, these, these opening 11 verses stand as a unit. Paul introducing all that is to come and speaking of the importance of the gospel. And I, I hope you'll be captured by that. I've put all of this under the heading of what's so unique about the Christian faith. And I'm going to give you three ways, three claims Paul makes that describe unique, the uniqueness of the Christian faith. All right. These are things you can hang your hat on, things you can build your life on, things you can put your hope for eternity on as well. But I want to pray for us. I want to read the text and move us right through these things, knowing that in doing so, there'll be a number of things in the text in front of us that I'll not comment on. So you can be prepared for that. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we come to your word always with a great sense of anticipation, eagerness, eagerness to, to see what you have said and to hear it and believe it and to love it. And then to allow your word to change us. You are always after not simply informing us, but changing us. And we ask you to do that today by the word of God applied to us by the spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for this text. It is here for our encouragement to build us up, to challenge us, to correct us. And we receive all those things with eagerness from you today. Help us now in Jesus name. Amen. First Corinthians 15, I want to read verses 1 through 11 as you look with me and together we hear the word of God. Paul says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am not the least of the for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, the first couple of verses I have uh, included in my introductory paragraph, uh, just by way of emphasizing the ramifications of what he's about to talk about. In those first two verses, he's introducing, really, he's shifting topics, and he's returning to the gospel, but he's, he's, he's saying a number of things, and I just focus on that phrase, by which you are being saved. In that statement, he is, he, is, he is reminding us of the ramifications of what he's talking about, by which you are saved. That is, that is, your eternal destiny depends on what he's about to talk about. That's the claim he's going to make. Where you spend eternity, the Bible from beginning to end teaches that when your life here is done, it is not done. It is not over. That there is life after death. That there's life after the grave. That is a claim in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And Paul here is saying to us that it is by this gospel, by the truth of this gospel, by the Christ of this gospel, that you are being saved. He is, he is planting for you your feet firmly on the idea that what he's going to talk about determines where you're going to spend forever. So these are no small things. This gospel by which you are being saved. Now, again, uh, if you studied a little bit and theologically or worked your way through texts, you, you see here a reminder that salvation comes in its three different areas. You are saved the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You are being saved along that road of life. That's the idea here. That's a process of being saved, and one day you will fully and finally be saved from the presence of sin when you're in the presence of God. So here he's emphasizing that ongoing element. By that gospel, you're being saved. He says, hold on to the gospel, hold on to the gospel, hold on to it. Three major claims then, verse 3. I start here. Christian faith. The Christian faith is a revealed, it's a revealed faith. I'm going to move quickly on these three. Um, The Christian faith is a revealed faith. You look at verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You can stop right there. That That is a decisive, so significant claim that Paul makes about the lesson, the message he's going to tell us. This is not something I made up. It is not based on fairy tales. It is not fables. No, this is this is truth. I received this. This phrase is reminiscent of chapter 11. Uh, You remember when Paul teaches on what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. He says, for I delivered uh, what I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. He is saying to us, no, I'm not making this up. God has spoken. And if you fill in little blanks here, that's the assertion. It is that God has spoken. That is, that is so profound. And I, I pause here to kind of beat the drum and pound the pulpit and say, do you see this? I mean, this is a big deal. Paul is saying, I'm not making this up, folks. God, the living God, has spoken. The God who in the beginning said, let there be light. And indeed, there was light. The God who formed the universe out of nothing because he said it and it was. That's the claim of the Bible. God spoke and the worlds existed. People wonder about the ultimate origins. Well, the Bible tells you. uh, 
It's a better, more satisfying answer than anything else. God spoke, and it was. Out of nothing, God spoke. And here, God has revealed. God has revealed. Paul stakes all of it on this. This cry, as I have in front of you, reverberates through the pages of Scripture. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, you will find a phrase that, that says something like, Thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. God has spoken. Now, among the many people who have written about this topic, just just to help us to percolate on it, is Al Mohler, a good Southern Baptist guy. A couple of his books, uh, one is entitled, He is Not Silent, uh, Preaching in a Postmodern World. Uh, Just a couple of little sentences here. Uh, He says this, preaching, true preaching begins with this confession. We preach because God has spoken. That fundamental conviction is the fulcrum of the Christian faith and of Christian, Christian preaching. That is, when we preach, we're not up here to make suggestions, to chat, to have a fireside talk, to share feelings. Feelings are good. No, no. Preaching by its very nature, biblically, is an announcement of what God has said. And if God has spoken, we should listen. It's right here in the Bible. And if the preacher's making it up, we should not listen. Right. Because he has no message. You just listen to somebody talk. No, but if God has spoken, then there's a message. Uh, Moeller, Moeller waxes eloquent here. The Bible bears witness to itself as the written word of God. A claim that speaks from the, springs from the fact that, that God God has spoken and given us the written word of God. He says he calls the church to speak on the basis of his word and deeds. All Christian preaching should be biblical preaching. Man, I like that. He says, let's be honest. The act of preaching would smack of unmitigated arrogance and overreaching were it not for the fact that it is God himself who's given us this task. Right? The the, the word of the living God. Another another book by Al Mohler. I was reading this uh, on some airplanes and trains and automobiles and so on. Um, on this little trip, getting ready for our summer preaching series that will begin July 1st. We are going to preach Old Testament, the Ten Commandments for the Christian. All right? What do you do with that? Well, we're, we're going to find out. Uh, for 10 weeks, July and August, we'll be revisiting the Ten Commandments, which, of course, begins with God has spoken. And in this little book entitled Words from the Fire, Hearing the Voice of God in the Ten Commandments, Again, uh, just a couple of things, and I, man, I was, you know, I was on an airplane, I think, and I was, you know, feel like pounding something, but I couldn't, got to behave. No, if God has spoken, Moeller says, everything has changed. Reflect on that for a minute. If God, if the living God has spoken, if he has, everything has changed. It means, it means that you can speak with certainty about what God has spoken certainly about. We live in a culture, we are steeped in this. Four little initials. Four little initials follow us everywhere. I-M-H-O, which all of you people know stands for. Yeah, we know who's on Facebook and uh, all these other places. All, yes, you're right. In my humble opinion, we live in a day where, where, where you're supposed to represent humility by saying, well, in, in, in my humble opinion, I think that that's wrong. I, I would never want to make a truth claim like that is really, really wrong, like some terrible thing and blowing things up and killing people. I wouldn't want to say that's really wrong, but in my opinion, it's wrong. Well, what in the world is that? It's a bunch of nonsense, frankly, because if, and this is Moeller's point, if God has spoken, if, if God has spoken, you don't need to put... I-M-H-O behind it. It's the voice of the living God. 
who knows what he's talking about and can say, okay, that's right. And guess what? That's wrong. And God doesn't have to put in my humble opinion afterwards because he just can say it. And as we accurately represent what he has said, then we can do so with clarity and authority and speak with certainty. We don't have to look at life after death and say, well, I, I hope, I hope, I hope it works out. Hey, wait a minute. If God has spoken clearly and authoritatively on this, hey, put a little you know, arch in your back and speak it. Stand up straight and speak it. Look somebody in the eye and say, no, God said that. Now, you can make it up. Come on now. I have on your study sheet here, the Bible claims ultimate authority and objective truth. Well, it does. It does. It draws a line in the sands of time and calls people to a decision with eternal implications, similar to Pilate's question in Matthew 27, 22, which you will recall, that's Pilate standing there at the trial of Jesus, Christ standing here, people in front of him, and Pilate very prophetically, if you will, says, what then will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? That question, of course, comes from the pages of Scripture to you, doesn't it? If, if indeed the Bible says God has spoken, and here's how you get to heaven, the Bible then looks at you and says, what will you do with that? You have some choices, of course. As C.S. Lewis would, would say, you have the choice of saying, well, I think Jesus was a good prophet, like many other prophets, nice guy, wonderful, and so on. You can leave it right there. Or, you, and there are problems with that, by the way, philosophically. Uh, good teachers, he made a pretty big claim to be the son of God, and if that's not true, he's not really a good teacher, but... I step aside from that for a moment. You can say, well, you know what? Um, not really true. Don't like any of it. Or you can bow at his feet and call him Lord. Trust him as your savior from sin and know the promises of God that your sins are forgiven. You're going to be with him one day. Wow. Really a big deal. The Bible claims that kind of authority. What will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? A second claim, looking at the Christian faith. The Christian faith is unique because it's a revealed faith. It's unique because, verses 4 through 8, it's focused on Jesus. It's focused on Jesus. If you look at verses 4 through 8, Paul walks us through what we might call the heart of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He walks through the gospel in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then begins a, a almost laborious line upon line listing of the people to whom Christ appeared after he was raised from the dead. We'll talk more about that in a minute. I have in front of you here, Paul describes the gospel message as of first importance. And he rehearses the message with those who already know the details. And he does so without apology. Can I just tell you what I meant by that? What I mean by that today? Sometimes, sometimes when, when Christians rehearse the gospel, it drives me nuts. This is a pet peeve of mine. Please don't ever do it. Uh, they, 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 they rehearse it with kind of an apology, kind of like, well, you know, you know, we, we all kind of know the details. And so, you know, Jesus died on the cross and so on, but, but let's move on to important things. Almost. We would never do it quite that boldly. But it happens in the rush of our voice, in the hurry to tell the story, with the idea that everybody here knows it and believes it, which is not true. Not everybody here does know the gospel equally as someone else, and probably not everybody in the sound of my voice, including electronically, not probably everybody believes it. To rehearse the gospel, to tell it again, should, should not produce a hurried look at the watch to say, let's move it on. It should produce a hush in your heart and an eagerness to remember again what Jesus did for you. 
I have seen it in books. I've heard it in sermons. Certainly not here. Uh, let it never be so that we, we rush through the telling of the story of Jesus. Paul doesn't do so here with any apology. These are people he preached to for a year and a half, was with them for 18 months in planting the church. He's written to them before he's writing now this, and he's going to tell them the gospel. And he says, here it is again. Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. See, the claim of the Bible, if there's nobody else who died for your sins, and if it wasn't him, you have no hope. Christ, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was buried because his body died a real death. That's why you bury somebody, is their body dies. His body died a real death. And he was buried in a cold, borrowed grave belonging to somebody else. And then as we heard, celebrated in the music already today, that dead body began to breathe again by the power of God as God in Christ conquered death He was raised again the third day. According to the scriptures, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. See, your your future life after this life is dependent on Christ. You understand this, right? Because I live, you will you will live also, Jesus said. No, these these details of the gospel. Then he he appeared. He appeared Keep that in your mind and comment on that again in a minute. But I want, to, I want to summarize this, please. This is my emphasis. Christian faith is about Christ. It is not primarily, oh, please understand this. It is not primarily a moral or ethical system. Okay? Okay? The, the, the moral and ethical implications of the gospel flow from a relationship with the living Jesus. Christianity itself is not intended to be a philosophy or a way of life, a way to keep people nice or order a society. That is not what the Christian faith is about. It is about Christ, a savior who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead. It is primarily about Jesus. And I say that even in looking at first Corinthians, oh man, please get this. Paul has been addressing problem after problem after problem, division, pettiness, immaturity, all kinds of moral nonsense and messy stuff. You remember, Uh, he's been doing that for chapter upon chapter and bringing the gospel to bear. Yes, absolutely true. But listen, you can have all those things in order, right? You can be all kind of lovey-dovey, no division. You can have your moral life in order. You can be a very nice person and miss God's heaven. You can. See? You can miss it if you miss Jesus. Christianity is not intended to be just some moral system, some way to live, to be nice. Yes, Christianity does affect, does affect culture. Huge. Travel a little bit. You can tell a culture that has been influenced by Christianity and one that's been influenced for decades, centuries by paganism. You can tell. You don't have to be smart. You just kind of sniff around a little bit and go, uh-huh, there's a Judeo-Christian ethic here. Think about it what you may. And there's not over here. There's a huge difference. Well, Christian faith is about Jesus. Now, third, third, what's unique about the Christian faith? I keep looking at the same verses, four through eight. Christian faith is, I've got it in quotes, a space, time, history, faith. And I, I explain that term here, space, time, and history. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, again, who I've referenced him already, he, he used that term, made it famous back in the 70s. To speak of the historicity of the Christian message, its accuracy, its historical nature, its verifiability. He was arguing against, and I I call it the still prevailing world system. It was true in the 70s and 80s, more pronounced today. This world system that seeks to separate the realms of science and faith. 
I, I had this said to me, I was trying to remember if it was a science teacher or a math teacher, I forget, but I was just talking over some, some issues of teaching and truth, frankly, um, with, with this teacher, and he went here. He, he, went, he said to me, he said to me, well, you know, there are two different ways of knowing things. There's science, which is about facts and objectivity, and then there's the realm of faith, which is about feelings and, you know, hopes and values and important things, but they're separate worlds. And then he turned and walked away as I said, you know, no, actually, that's not true. That's actually not true. Uh, Science has become, I'll be honest, it's become a religion today. But we don't often like to think of it that way. Our popular culture does not get it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Scientism, uh, science, objective, right? It's about facts. Is that true right there? What I just said. Science has been wrong. Scientists have been wrong. The scientific method is supposed to be about things that are repeatable, right? In a, in a lab, you can repeat it. Okay, that's that's the scientific method. I learned that in eighth grade. Did you? Did you pass eighth grade science? Man, if so, you did experiments. You had a hypothesis, and you did some silly experiment with pouring different colored things in and seeing oil and water separate, and you drew conclusions. It's called the scientific method. We all learned that. And the scientific method is, is wonderful for things that you can repeat, unlike history. Because you can't repeat history, can you? So... I picked on this guy a couple months ago. I'm going to pick on him again today. If you stick around long enough, I'm going to pick on him again. Uh, because, not because it's him personally. I'm just going to give you a quote. You'll know exactly who said it. But because he, he represents in this statement a, a non-scientific statement that he passes off as science. The cosmos is all it is that was or ever will be. Who said that? Yeah, Carl Sagan. Is that a scientific statement? Absolutely not. Because it is not verifiable, provable, repeatable in a laboratory. It's a philosophical statement. It's a religious statement if there ever was one. The universe, the cosmos is all that is. Okay, stop. How do you know that? Were you there? Can you repeat that? Can you show me? None of that. None of that. No, it's a religious statement. All that was and all that ever will be. Can you prove that? No, because you won't be there either. That is a, that is a, a faith statement if there ever was one. As religious as anything out of the Ten Commandments. And it passes as science and is celebrated. Good night, folks. A little bit of logic here would be wonderful. Man, yes, I'm picking on it. Uh, Paul, in verses 4 through 8, is, 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 is asserting that Christ died in real time in history. A real human body went to the cross. He died a real death. He was buried in a real grave. And that body rose from the dead. Okay. He's talking about real space, real time, real history. And that is his assertion. Verse 4, if the story stopped in the middle of verse 4, Christianity would be like countless other religions based on the words of a dead prophet. Paul's list of eyewitnesses. I've referenced that a couple times. What's the big deal with the eyewitnesses? Why is that so important? Go ahead, talk to me. What's, what's his point? Sorry? Yeah. He's saying they're all over the place. No, right now, as I write this letter, hundreds of them, hundreds of people who have seen the resurrected Christ on the, on the witness of hundreds, hundreds of eyewitnesses, a person can go to jail today. Can't they? If you have hundreds of eyewitnesses saying, yep, 
Yep. Guess what? Hundreds. If you have hundreds of people saying you did it, I'm sorry, friend. You're you're out of here. Uh, I'll come visit. Yeah, you're, it'll, it'll be over for you. Eyewitnesses. We, we, we say can prove something. What's the phrase? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Come on. You guys were all on jury duty. You know this uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Paul gives a list of eyewitnesses because he's trying to, to, to make a statement. He's trying to make a big assertion. No, Christian faith isn't just some system somebody cooked up and uh, full of fables and stories. No, space, time, history, real, real, actual history. Thank you, Francis Schaefer. Uh, I read a, a statement from uh, one of the guys that spoke at the forum we were just at. I can't give it to you correctly. I didn't, couldn't find the page prior to today, but it was, he has a whole lecture that he gives in universities and it's based on this. This is the thesis. There's more historical proof for Jesus Christ in his resurrection than for Napoleon. Everybody believes in Napoleon. His point is uh, first uh, those about manuscript evidence. That's his point. There's more historical proof for Jesus and the resurrection than for Napoleon, and everybody seems, all the academy seems to believe in him. So, interesting. It's a, it's a talk he gives in universities across Europe. Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, verses 9, 10, 11. Go there with me. The Christian faith demands a response. It demands a response of you. And here's Paul's response. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because... I persecuted the church of God. That's his past. That's the stuff of which he is guilty. I persecuted the church of God. And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. What's the point here? You see there on your study sheet, Paul says, I don't deserve what God's offering through the gospel. See, I'm guilty of some things. And I say to us, so are you, by the way. You're guilty of some things too. Paul would say, I don't deserve, I don't deserve what he's offering. I don't deserve God's offer. And yet at the same time, verse 10, God's grace was enough for Paul. God's grace was enough to cover him. God's grace was enough to see that he was forgiven. And God's grace is enough for you. This text introduces a big section on resurrection. I'm eager to to go there with you next week. Jesus and the death of death. So excited about these, these uh, texts coming up, eager to look at them with you. But Paul begins by reminding us of the gospel, a Jesus who left a tomb empty. I want to pray for us, and we'll talk more about some of these applicational elements here in a minute or two. Those who are going to serve as communion can come on down as I pray. As we, as we transition to communion, communion is a celebration of this, everything I just said. It's remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's an opportunity for you to spend these moments with the Lord and say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much that Jesus died for me. So join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, you have a way of prodding our hearts regarding sin in our lives. Things that we need to deal with before you even right now. And so, Father, we're asking you to do that. If there are things going on in our lives right now that you want to talk to us about, as we spend these moments remembering Jesus, maybe now's the time when you're going to just just hold up the mirror of the word of God you're going to show us. We invite you to do that. 
not for the purpose of piling guilt upon guilt, but for the purpose of turning us to Jesus in confession, repentance, and knowing forgiveness. Thank you so much that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and was raised again the third day, as the scriptures tell us. Thank you for this. And I pray, our Father, that we would not yawn our way through a remembrance of Jesus, but that around this room, cross uh, the, the airwaves as other people hear and listen later. Our Father, would you, would you just bring a great chorus of thankfulness to you? We remember Christ, and we pray together in his name. Amen.